Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Ukraine's president brings up a new idea regarding peace talks as the battle for Mariupol rages on. One expert says the port city is symbolic for both sides. President Joe Biden attended a meeting with corporate CEOs. He warned American companies of potential cyber attacks from Russia. China's ambassador to the U.S. refuses to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the Chinese regime's star news anchor says to fight Russia would be to fight a friend. Rescuers in China are searching for victims of a catastrophic plane crash in a southern province. So far, there are no signs of any survivors. Peace talks and fighting continue. Ukraine's president suggests putting peace deal terms up for a referendum so Ukrainian citizens can vote on them. But the Kremlin says that would only undermine talks. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. The Kremlin said Tuesday it wants ongoing talks between Russia and Ukraine to be more active and substantive. But it said Russia doesn't plan to make its detailed demands public. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Monday he thinks he'll need to meet with Russian leader Vladimir Putin in order to negotiate an end to the war. I believe that until such a time as we have a meeting with the president of the Russian Federation, you can't truly understand what they are prepared to do in order to stop the war and what they're prepared to do if we are not ready for this or that compromise. Zelensky said any compromises to end the war would need a referendum so the Ukrainian people could vote on it. The people will have to speak up and respond to this or that form of compromise. Meanwhile, in the southeast, the battle continues for the port city of Mariupol. Russia's plan is to take control over the city, to control the port, to link it up to Crimea. Russia says it's conducting a special military operation to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. The West says it's just a pretext to invade the country. Ukraine analyst Orisa Lutsevich says Mariupol is the home base of the Azov Battalion. The group openly uses Nazi imagery and symbols and it's allegedly carried out war crimes and torture since 2014. I think personally it's a revenge against this battalion because they have reclaimed the city in 2014 and Putin really wants to show that he can take back what he believes belongs to him. On Monday, Ukraine refused to surrender Mariupol after Russia called on Ukrainian forces to lay down their arms. Even if Russians take over and install a puppet mayor and a puppet military administration, uh, they will still have to deal with resistance. And that is why city is not capitulating. Lutsevich said the resistance in Mariupol shows that the people don't want to live under Russian occupation. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Russia says it does not engage in banditry at the state level. That's after President Joe Biden urged U.S. companies to make sure their digital doors are locked tight and warned that Russia could launch cyber attacks against the United States. President Joe Biden on Monday attended the Business Roundtable CEO's quarterly meeting. Addressing corporate CEOs, he renewed warnings of potential cyber attacks from Moscow against key U.S. infrastructure. Today, my administration issued renew warnings that based on evolving intelligence, Russia may be planning a cyber attack against us. As I said, the magnitude of Russia's cyber capacity is fairly consequential, and it's coming. 
The president urged companies to build up their ability to counter Russian cyber threats and to take it as a patriotic obligation. He added that federal aid is also available if needed. Supply chain issues and price increases across the country were also discussed. Shortly after the meeting, the State Department said Moscow would pay for the price for launching such attacks against the U.S. We have made it very clear uh, to the Russians that uh, there would be a high price to pay uh, if they were to use uh, their capabilities uh, to target critical infrastructure, uh, to target uh, sectors of uh, strategic importance. Russia has mounted major cyber attacks against Ukraine over the past few years, including one in 2017 that caused more than $10 billion in damage worldwide. The Chinese ambassador to the U.S. appeared to mock the host of CBS's Face the Nation when she pressed him on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Take a look. But you would recognize as not good, friendly, neighborly relations what is with 150,000 troops on the border of a neighboring country and then to send those troops into that country. Yeah. In those circumstances, why can't you condemn this as an invasion? Mm -hmm. Condemnation. It sounds naive to say that's not an invasion. It <laughs> doesn't solve the problem. You know, I, I, I would be country. surprised if Russia will back down by condemnation. This comes as the Chinese regime draws criticism for its implied support of Russia. As the West condemns Russia's invasion, China has tried to portray itself as a neutral party. The Chinese foreign ministry said Ukraine needs baby food and sleeping bags, not the weapons the U.S. is sending. Ukraine's deputy prime minister gave a rare, strongly worded response. She said the comment was absolutely not serious and said Ukraine needs air defense systems amid Russian bombings of residential areas. She also took a jab at China's haphazard evacuation of its nationals from the war-torn country, saying, I would suggest that the Chinese foreign ministry ask the opinion of 160 Chinese students whom we evacuated out of the Russian shelling last week. Beijing gave no forewarning of a possible Russian invasion to its nationals in Ukraine, unlike other countries. This left up to 6,000 Chinese nationals unprepared. China's evacuation efforts didn't begin until four days after Russia invaded. What's more, a star TV anchor for Chinese state media comments on why China has refused to denounce Russia's invasion. She told her viewers it's so China can protect itself. She said that if Beijing were to fight Russia, it would be the same as fighting a friend. Liu Xin is the host of the state-run English TV channel CGTN. She made the remark while commenting on the talks between Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Liu said Biden was basically asking China to help the U.S. fight Russia so the U.S. could fight China later. In the talks, Biden warned Xi Jinping of consequences if China supports Russia. NTD's reporter on the ground in Ukraine, Dan Skorbak, spoke to several community leaders in the Ukrainian city of Ternopil. The mayor says the city's churches have become a place of refuge. Ternopil, a city where thousands of locals come together to help those in need. We sat with the mayor, Serhii Nadal, who has transformed 16 of the city's 35 public schools into housing for refugees who left war-struck towns in eastern Ukraine. They don't only live here. We also provide them with everything they need, food, clothing. If people come with animals, we also provide those animals with the food, bedding, and everything they need. 
There are a number of issues that didn't exist before, but there has never been such cohesion and such unification of the city and the whole country. It's hard to convey. The roles of mayors in Western Ukrainian cities, both large and small, have evolved after the Russian invasion. They organize the sorting and distribution of aid pouring in from across the world, coordinate territorial defenses, and house, feed, and care for refugees. Chernobyl has always been a highly spiritual city. We have very religious people, and with the onset of war, people are increasingly turning to God. And today, I thank all the bishops of all the traditional churches that are in our city for their support, because they have not just become places of prayer, they have become centers of volunteering, fundraising, aid delivery, and transportation to all parts of the country where hostilities are taking place today. We visited a church where we talked to Father Martin. He spoke to us as refugees picked up food and clothes that was delivered there from cities around the world. Most of the, the clothes you see here today are from uh, Holland and also from people around town, around our town. Uh, because our church is in the center uh, of our town, uh, most of the people, they just come to our church, to our cathedral, and this has become a hub for uh, aid all sorts of aid. A 15-minute walk from the church, young volunteers zigzag in the basement of the Chernobyl Museum of Science, sorting aid to be distributed to refugees or to be sent to cities in need. Hub coordinator Mikhailo Serotyuk said help is coming from all over Ukraine and the world. Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Chernobyl, Ukraine. A district court judge recently blocked a D.C. law that permits minors to get vaccinated without parental consent, ruling that it tramples on the Constitution. And today's Arlene Richards reports. Last week, a federal judge halted a Washington, D.C. law that allows children to get vaccinated without parental consent. Under that law, which went into effect last year, minors age 11 and older can choose to get vaccinated, and they don't have to tell their parents. But parents objected to the law and asked for preliminary relief to stop its continued enforcement. Uh, they are filed the lawsuit to challenge the um, D.C. Minor Consent for Vaccination Act as unconstitutional. They all four have submitted religious exemptions to vaccinations, and they're, all their children are minors. Parents sued D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and other defendants. Rolf Hazelhurst, a senior staff attorney at the Children's Health Defense and the lead attorney on behalf of the families, says a federal law called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, or NCVIA, takes precedence over the D.C. law. The National Vaccine Act requires that parents shall be given what's called vaccine information statements. This is a, a one-page or one page, or two pages, um, which explains the risks and benefits of vaccinations. But the mayor's attorney said the federal law didn't apply to children getting vaccines. They said in papers filed with the court, there is no explicit preemption provision in the NCVIA implicating the district's act here, and the plaintiff has not cited any. We reached out to the mayor's attorney for comment, but did not hear back before broadcast. Hazelhurst says the D.C. law is dangerous because a child could have an adverse reaction to a vaccine and the parents wouldn't know why. The mayor has 30 days to appeal the court's decision. Otherwise, the order remains in effect until further order of the court. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York.
The CDC has elaborated on why exactly it removed tens of thousands of COVID-19 deaths from its data tracker webpage last week. Speaking to the Epic Times, the agency said this happened because it was mistakenly counting deaths not related to the virus. According to a COVID data tracking website, the CDC removed over 72,000 deaths. Among them were the deaths of 416 children, amounting to almost a quarter of the child COVID deaths listed by the agency. In an email to the Epic Times, a spokesperson for the CDC said the agency constantly reviews its COVID-19 data to ensure its accuracy. The spokesperson added that the adjustment was made because the CDC's algorithm was accidentally counting deaths that were not COVID-19 related. The CDC didn't announce the adjustment when the change was made. And on its website, it attributed the change to a coding logic error. Pfizer said on Monday it's recalling some lots of blood pressure drug Acuretic and two authorized cheaper versions of the drug. This is due to the presence of elevated levels of anitrazamine, a potential cancer-causing impurity. Pfizer says it hasn't received any reports of adverse events related to the drug so far. Nitrosamines are common in water and foods, including cured and grilled meats, dairy products, and vegetables. Exposure to the impurities above acceptable levels over long periods of time could increase the risk of cancer. However, Pfizer says there is no immediate risk to patients taking the drug. The drug maker says that patients currently taking the products should consult with their doctor about alternative treatment options. Pfizer Canada, earlier this month, recalled Acuretic due to the presence of the same impurity. Rhode Island's Attorney General announced settlements against two drug makers. Those are one, Teva Pharmaceutical Industries, and two, AbbVie's Allergan Unit. He values the settlements at $107 million. This to resolve claims over their roles in fueling an opioid epidemic in the state. The state's attorney general says the settlements include over $28 million in cash and the delivery of overdose treatments to Rhode Island over a 10-year period. Israel-based Teva is the world's largest generic drug company. They are calling the settlement a critical step forward in getting life-saving treatments to people who need them. The company says it's still actively negotiating a national settlement. AbbVie, which acquired Allergan in 2020, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The settlement was reached just as Rhode Island was prepared to take Teva to trial. The CDC says more than 500,000 people have died due to opioid overdoses in the past two decades. Officials are investigating a release of fentanyl through the air vents at a Northwest Ohio Juvenile Detention Center in Williams County. Seven people were sent to the hospital. Jeff Lehman is the chief deputy for the Williams County Sheriff's Department. He says it takes as little as four or five grains, about the size of a grain of salt, to kill somebody. And the drug can be absorbed just by brushing something off somebody's clothing or touching up against something. It can be absorbed through the skin or through the air. Three corrections officers and four juvenile detainees were taken to the hospital Sunday night. Lehman says all seven are expected to recover. Authorities are investigating how the fentanyl was released. Four states that are prone to flooding and that were impacted by Hurricane Ida last year are getting a financial boost from the Biden administration. Residents in Louisiana, Mississippi, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania will be able to apply for funding from the Federal Emergency Management Agency. The goal of the so-called Swift Current Initiative 
is to help homeowners who are dealing with the aftermath of the flooding. The funding can be used to sell or rebuild structures that have been flooded more than once. FEMA says these four states were chosen because they have seen the most flood-related damage. Louisiana will get $40 million in funding, New Jersey will get 10, and Mississippi and Pennsylvania will each get 5. People can apply starting on April 1st. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he'll approve $800 million in next year's budget to boost teacher salaries. This will increase the annual pay of new teachers to at least $47,000. Data shows the average starting salary for Florida teachers was $40,000 in 2020. That makes the state 26th in the nation for teachers' pay. But after the raise, this ranking will jump to 9th. Administrators noted that the pay raise will help Florida retain talented educators amid a national teacher shortage. And teachers themselves said the move makes them feel respected and appreciated. And that in times of rapid inflation, it will also help them pay their bills. Up next, the 9-11 Tribute Museum sits across the street from the National Memorial in New York City. But after educating millions of visitors since its opening, it now faces closure amid a pandemic-induced tourism drop and a costly move in 2017. All that and more here on NTD News. Before the September 11th Museum opened at the World Trade Center, the 9-11 Tribute Museum opened across the street. 16 years and 5 million visitors later, the museum may be closing. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Financial pressures have been mounting for some time, but leaders say the museum has been pushed to the brink by the pandemic, which hammered tourism after a costly 2017 move. We are still hoping that a champion could step forward um, for what we need to basically right the ship and really the most importantly continue our programs going forward. Um, it is in the millions, but it's not insurmountable. The 9-11 Tribute Museum traces its roots to 2004 when a group of victims' relatives decided to turn a former deli steps away from ground zero into a museum. The memorial serves a very important um, story of history but it's not the community that was directly affected, and that's what tribute serves. The 9-11 Tribute Museum exhibited a photo gallery of victims and artifacts, including twisted steel from the wreckage. But it became best known for walking tours of the Trade Center site, led by relatives of the dead, survivors, rescue and recovery workers, and people who lived nearby on 9-11. The 9-11 Memorial at the World Trade Center site is really a tribute to those who died on September 11th. The 9-11 Tribute Museum is about the survivor community. It's about those people that came down here as heroes to help support the rebuilding of Lower Manhattan. The Tribute Center quickly proved popular with visitors, with 100,000 visiting in the first four months. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The Pennsylvania State Police are mourning the loss of two of its own killed in the line of duty. The Pennsylvania State Police say troopers Martin Mack III and Brandon Siska were responding to a call of a man walking on Interstate 95. Mack and Siska were putting the man into the back of a police car when another vehicle that was attempting to avoid the area hit and killed all three. The driver of that vehicle stayed on the scene. Mack enlisted in November 2014 and was assigned to the Philadelphia Barracks since 2015. 
Siska enlisted in February of last year and recently graduated. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolfe said he is saddened by the deaths. He said, on behalf of all Pennsylvanians, I want to extend my deepest sympathies and condolences. We are so, so sorry for the loss that we all had experienced. Wolf has ordered the state flags to fly at half-mast until Friday night. A Florida Highway Patrol officer is grateful to the drivers who pulled over to help him subdue a man resisting arrest. Take a look at this dash cam video. The trooper can be seen talking to a man identified as Alexander Hernandez Delgado. Delgado punches the officer as he tries to put him in the patrol car. As you can see here, several cars, including this semi-truck, pulled over to assist. The officer, along with the help of the civilians, was able to overpower Delgado and put him under arrest. According to the criminal report affidavit, he is charged with battery of a law enforcement officer. He also is charged with resisting an officer with violence. He is currently in jail. No word yet from his public defender on the incident. In this report, the officer said he suffered a bloody nose. A jury convicted a Tennessee man in the slaying of former NBA player Lorenzen Wright. His body, riddled with bullets, was found in a field 12 years ago in his hometown of Memphis. The 12-person jury deliberated for about two hours. It found Billy Ray Turner guilty of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy in Wright's case. Shelby County Criminal Court Judge Lee Coffey sentenced Turner to life in prison. More sentencing to come. The slaying is one of the most publicized murder cases in Memphis history. The 34-year-old father of six had been missing for days before they found his body. Turner had already pleaded guilty to possessing a weapon as a convicted felon when he was arrested in Wright's killing in 2017. Turner is serving a 16-year prison sentence on the separate gun charge. Prosecutors allege Wright's ex-wife, Shara Wright, masterminded a plan to kill her ex-husband. They say she recruited Turner and her cousin, Jimmy Martin, to help her. Turner and Shara Wright were indicted in 2017, more than seven years after the killing. Shara Wright entered a surprise guilty plea to facilitation of murder in 2019. She was sentenced to 30 years in prison. The U.S. Coast Guard says dredging has begun to free a cargo ship that's been stranded in the Chesapeake Bay for more than a week. Officials say a salvage company began dredging around the Ever Forward over the weekend. The work is expected to continue throughout the week. A Maryland Port Administration official says the dredged materials will be used to rebuild an island off the Chesapeake's eastern shore. The island has suffered from severe erosion. The Ever Forward was headed from the port of Baltimore to Norfolk, Virginia when it ran aground on March 13th. The Coast Guard says officials have not yet determined what caused the Ever Forward to run aground. The ship is not blocking navigation in the channel. Last year, the Ever Given ran aground in the Suez Canal and disrupted the global supply chain for days. Both cargo ships are owned by Evergreen Marine. A federal appeals court has upheld Los Angeles County's ban on flavored tobacco products. In a two-to-one ruling, the judges found that state and local powers can independently regulate tobacco beyond federal government standards. Los Angeles County started banning the sale of any flavored tobacco or menthol cigarettes in May 2020. It included areas outside the city of Los Angeles. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a similar bill, 
but a petition for a referendum prevented it from going into effect across the state. The issue will be voted on in the November election. A midnight driving stunt gone wrong wrecks multiple cars in Los Angeles. The impressive footage shows a Tesla getting three seconds of airtime, but another car was totaled in the aftermath. NTD's Jason Blair brings us the story. A driver was recorded trying to pull off a dangerous stunt by launching a Tesla into the air at a steep L.A. intersection. The video has been going viral and the police are offering a reward for information on the driver. According to LAPD, the high-speed stunt gone wrong happened just after midnight on Sunday morning. The car can be seen getting about three seconds of airtime before a loud crash landing then running into two parked cars and several trash cans. Fortunately, there were no reported injuries. The police say the car was a rental and the driver fled the scene, leaving the car abandoned. Everybody came outside to see guys piling out of the total Tesla, getting into other Teslas that had come down the hill and were now waiting. So everybody piles out of the totaled one. Two of my neighbors saw the guy who was driving handle a cat as he was going from one car to the other. Jordan Hook is the owner of one of the parked cars that was a victim of the crash landing. The L.A. musician posted a video showing the damage done to his parked Subaru, saying that unfortunately it looks like his car is done for. And I just put like $4,500 into getting a, a new motor in it last month because I'm a musician and I, I travel a lot, I tour a lot, and this has been a great car. Hook said his neighbors helped him start a GoFundMe page open to people who want to help him replace his totaled car. LAPD has offered a $1,000 reward for leads into the misdemeanor hit and run. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. Coming up, South Korea's president-elect is moving the president's office out of the Blue House. He says the decision is to better serve the public, but critics have raised concerns. More than 10 years after a tsunami caused the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant disaster, a tiny section of the town of Futaba in Japan reopens. Stay tuned for more. Rescuers in China were scouring the remnants of a disastrous plane crash in the southern Guangxi province, searching for victims with no sign of any survivors on Tuesday. There were 132 people on board when the aircraft went down the day before. A China Eastern Airlines flight from Kunming to Guangzhou that suddenly plunged and crashed into heavily forested mountains. It's China's first commercial jet crash since 2010, and investigators are now searching for the Boeing 737-800 jet's flight recorders to figure out what went wrong. Relatives and colleagues of the flight passengers gathered at Guangzhou's Baiyun International Airport Monday, waiting for any news. One man said he came to the airport to confirm whether his co-worker was one of the victims, and later informed the victim's family. His relatives had very mixed feelings when I broke the news and they were sobbing. His mother didn't believe this had happened. After I confirmed the news to her, she was sobbing, then she said she will be here as soon as possible. Because she was very sad, her boy was only 29 years old. 
State media reported that China Eastern and two of its subsidiaries have grounded their fleet of 737-800 planes, while other Chinese airlines have yet to do so, according to Chinese aviation data provider Flightmaster. Analyst Robert Spingarn says the jet shouldn't be confused with the 737 MAX, which has been grounded in China for over three years following fatal crashes in 2018 and 2019. The aircraft itself that crashed uh, earlier today was delivered new in 2015, so it's about six years old, but the model has over 20 years of experience and has a relatively positive, strong track record. So this is not a MAX, and frankly, the system that was at the core of the MAX situation uh, is not on this aircraft. Monday's flight took a disastrous turn, just when it would normally start its descent ahead of landing. A former head of the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration told Reuters, mechanical failures in modern commercial jets are rare at cruising altitude. South Korea's president-elect is changing the location of the presidential office. He says the old site, known as the Blue House, is not an ideal place to serve the public. South Korea's incoming president, Yoon Suk-yeol, is planning to move the country's presidential office to a new location. It will go from its traditional spot, known as the Blue House, to the Defense Ministry building in central Seoul. Considering the inconvenience to the people and to make a complete return of the Blue House to the public, I thought it would be right to make a prompt decision to relocate to the Defense Ministry building in Yongsan. The step will cost an estimated $40 million. At the Blue House, offices for presidential advisors and the press room are in a separate building hundreds of yards away. And Yoon explains the move will also improve communication with the public. I earnestly ask the people to understand that it's my determination to serve the people, work properly, and keep my promise with the people. We will open the Blue House and return it to the public on May 10th at the start of term. Critics have asked him not to rush the relocation. They say other tasks are more urgent, such as rising COVID-19 cases, the North Korean nuclear threat, and economic problems. And a group of 11 former members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff issued a statement opposing the plan. They say it would allow an enemy to hit both the president's office and the military headquarters with the same strike. However, one Korean says this will make the president more accessible. I'm expecting that President-elected Yoon will be able to communicate with citizens more closely. However, I think he also needs to make a policy to solve the various problems that will follow. Yoon says he'll begin his term at the new office, and he'll consult public opinion for its name. More than 10 years after a tsunami caused the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant disaster, a tiny section of the town of Futaba in Japan has reopened. It's the first time people have been able to return since all 7,000 residents were forced to flee. The town has been entirely empty of residents since March 2011. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. Yakushi Hosozawa was among the first to return, coming back the day it became possible. After a small section of his hometown, Futaba, reopened in January. Since the disaster happened, I wanted to return to Futaba. I always had that in my head. Futaba saw the evacuation of all 7,000 residents because of radiation after the March 11, 2011 earthquake and subsequent tsunami that left more than 18,000 people dead or missing along Japan's northeastern coast. 
Only seven have permanently returned to live in the town. I was thinking that I wanted to return to Futaba, Naraha, Tomioka, Namie. Everyone was returning in five years, three years, but Futaba was last. But I thought it's okay if it's last. I wanted to return. But I came back, and I think it was a mistake. 50-year-old Atsugu Yamamoto runs a penguin fast food store in the Futaba Business Community Center. It was a popular hangout for local students and a landmark before the disaster. Now in Futaba, rather than new buildings being built, places that used stand are being broken down. From our view, the buildings that remind us of our hometown are disappearing, like my friend's old house. Although my house was demolished early on, but there is a great sadness in that. Takumi Yamada is a worker at Futaba's only hotel. The 23-year-old spent most of his teenage years away after fleeing with his parents and two siblings. After studying elsewhere in Fukushima and Tokyo, Yamada decided to return home to reconnect and learn about an area he hardly remembered. I think it is difficult to change the minds of those who said they are not coming back, but there are those wondering whether to come back or not. I think it's the biggest thing to come back and see the situation for themselves. Only a handful have returned so far, and some question whether others will go back to a town lacking a school and a doctor. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Next up, more and more Ukrainians are fleeing their country as the war wages on. For many of them, the journey isn't easy. Students in Chicago held a special vigil for Ukraine with songs and prayers, they welcomed new classmates from the war-torn country. Find out more after this short break. Nearly 3.4 million Ukrainians have fled their country since the war with Russia started. Most of them went to Poland, and many are still on their way. Some of them are sharing their experiences. 40-year-old Ludmila Lichko is fleeing her home city of Mykolaiv with her two sons. They left the city by bus on March 16th on a journey to Odessa. It's a port city in the southwest that has so far largely escaped the fighting. Her husband stayed behind to volunteer in the fight. There were already airstrikes where we lived. The neighboring village, Vitovka Rayon, suffered a lot from bombing. And as our house is on the outskirts, the shrapnel could directly reach us. That's very scary. That's why we decided to leave. After arriving in Odessa, the family boarded a train for a five-hour trip to another city called Ismail. From there, they have to ride a bus to the Danube port of Orlivka and then catch a ferry to cross the river to get to Romania. Since Odessa, they have been traveling almost 10 hours straight. We plan to go to Poland. We have relatives that live there. They can take us in for some time. Later on, if the situation calms down and everything will be fine, and the situation will be fine for sure, we will return to our home. Poland has taken in over 2 million Ukrainian refugees since the war began. One of them is 15-year-old Bogdan Skoda from Kyiv. I think that in Polsha I feel better because I don't worry about me. But something I worry about my family, about my mom and dad. 
Where is your mama, your now? In Kiev. The teenager crossed into Poland on Monday with the help of a third-party organization. He had to flee Ukraine alone while his parents stayed. His father is unwell. Because uh, my dad is invalid and uh, they can't, can't uh, go to the Polish and other countries. And uh, mama uh, need to help him. Ukraine has a total population of around 45 million. The UN Refugee Agency says some 10 million Ukrainians have been displaced by the war. Among them, 3.4 million, mostly women and children, have fled abroad. An activist in New York City is working closely with community members and businesses to help Ukrainian refugees who have made it to the U.S. Michael Levitis is the host of Freedom FM, a radio station based in New York City. He shares some of his efforts to help Ukrainians fleeing Russian bombings. For example, we had people call in our station that they have houses available that are right now vacant. Can we uh, house uh, refugees that have no roof over their heads that are here in America, and we were able to connect people with houses with refugees? Uh, also, we had people who are calling our station saying, thank you, we are from Russia. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot listen right now to Western media. It has been banned. Facebook was banned. Instagram was banned. However, we can listen to your radio. You are in Russian. You are on the Internet, and we're getting some independent information. So why are the Russians so happy to be able to listen to your radio station? Our station is uh, American-owned by American business people. We're not sponsored by Putin or by the Kremlin. We're independent. Whereas the uh, media right now in Russia is all state-sponsored. So they're only getting the news that the government wants them to hear. We are giving them the news that is Western, that is independent, that is the way things are on the ground as far as we know. And what's the next step for your organization? We're really hopeful this war is going to end today, tomorrow. However, the aftershocks are going to continue for time to come. So we'll continue to do our best to use our resources, our voice, to help the refugees and the Ukrainian people as much as we can. Are you in contact with people in Ukraine? Yes, I am. I have friends and I have uh, relatives uh, as well as business people in Ukraine, and we are all very worried for their safety. And uh, a lot of them are trying to get out. Not everybody can. Well, for example, the officials in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol said that the city will not surrender to the Russian demands and that if right. they did, they would be able to get safe passage. Are people able to move freely enough? Uh, not in Mariupol, because the problem is that even if they are able to go free, they're able to go only to Russia. And not everybody wants to go to Russia, because right now Russia, unfortunately, is the enemy of uh, Ukraine. They don't want to flee uh, to a country that they're uh, under attack from. What would happen if they did? Uh, there have been some reports that uh, Ukrainians that were surrendering to Russian forces and being moved to Russia uh, are being put in camps so they could get processed to see who's a spy, who is not, very uncomfortable conditions. And there were other reports that some were forced to work, to work as forced labor for the Russians. We cannot confirm it, but those were the reports. The U.S. has what it calls credible information that identified Ukrainians are being put on lists by Russians to be sent to camps or killed. 
That's according to a U.S. ambassador to the Office of the United Nations. The ambassador is warning of a potential human rights catastrophe in the days to come. This information was in an undated letter published by the Washington Post on Sunday. More Ukrainians are fleeing their homes as the war escalates. At a Chicago school, students welcomed new Ukrainian members with songs and prayers. A special prayer vigil is underway at a Catholic school in Chicago, calling for peace as the devastating war approaches one month. Well, I'm really glad that our school is doing this because we're here so far away from Ukraine. It, it feel a bit, we feel a bit helpless sometimes. And doing this, I think, really makes us feel a bit like um, better in some way that we are helping Ukraine, at least in some way that we can. At St. Nicholas Cathedral, at least 80% of the students are Ukrainian. Many of the students have family members living in Ukraine. From my mother's side, we have a, a lot of relatives, cousins, second cousins, first cousins. They are they're safe right now, but a lot of the times when we call them, they're either hiding or preparing to hide. They are struggling to cope with the reality that their families are displaced. When, uh, whenever my grandma calls them, because she's the person that keeps in contact with them the most, it's how are you and how many times have you had to hide in the cellars because it's something that's become a daily thing. The school has hosted eight students who have left Ukraine in the past few weeks. Administrators say they are preparing to include 50 more. Along with students from three other Catholic schools, they welcome the new arrivals with songs and prayers, asking God to protect Ukraine. I feel like I'm a bit in control. That's what humans like to feel, that they're in a bit of control. And I know that I'm not really, but I know that God is in control. And uh, we're praying to God, and that makes me feel, and all of us makes us feel better. According to the UN Refugee Agency, in the past three weeks, more than three million Ukrainians have fled their homes. Students are calling on everyone to pray for the war-ravaged country and its people. Gold prices have risen during Russia's invasion of Ukraine as investors seek a safe haven. But will the precious metal head for a big price drop as hopes run high for progress in peace talks? Or are the fundamentals for gold still strong? Joining us now is Brian Slazarchik, who says historically, gold has been a hedge against uncertainty. He tells us how the conflict in Ukraine is impacting the gold market. What this crisis in Ukraine is highlighting on a larger scale from a commodities perspective is that there is real fragility of supply. And that, of course, falls more in line with discussion as to resources like oil and gas, like base metals. And we've seen really erratic behavior in those commodities uh, over the past few weeks. I think that what people in Europe are realizing, and I think what people around the world are realizing is the importance of having safe, stable, reliable supply from trading partners that we can view as reliable partners. Right now, a place like Germany that relies on uh, Russia for 50% of its gas needs, for example, is feeling the pressure of that pinch now. In terms of gold, I think that the invasion of Ukraine and the crisis there has created an environment of uncertainty, instability, and during those times historically, that's when gold has really acted as a hedge against those types of events. So do you expect the price of gold to stay high or to fall as this conflict subsides? I think that the macro setup for gold was in place 
long before the crisis in Ukraine. I think that this crisis is highlighting gold's role as a hedge against uncertainty, but more importantly for gold is this setup, which, as I mentioned, involves the policy of quantitative easing infinity, monetary fiscal stimuli, artificially low interest rates, and the fiat paper printing presses running in hyperdrive around the clock. Do you think it's people looking for a safe haven or it's speculators driving up the price? I think that in general, it is safe haven investors. It's people that want to hedge against uncertainty. And if you look at the purchasing power of gold, gold for thousands of years has proven to be a store of wealth. Many paper currencies have come and gone over the past thousand of years where gold has functioned well in both uh, times of stability, but more magnified during times of instability. 21-time Grand Slam champion Rafael Nadal is suffering from a stress fracture in one of his ribs. The Spaniard said on Twitter he would be out for four to six weeks. Nadal's perfect start to 2022 ended on Sunday. American Taylor Fritz secured a surprise victory in the final at Indian Wells, beating the Spaniard 6-3, 7-6. But the 35-year-old was already struggling with injury. He winced throughout the match, often touching the left side of his torso. Nadal came into the final on a 20-match winning streak, including a record-breaking 21st Grand Slam victory at the Australian Open. He is likely to miss the Monte Carlo Masters in April and the Barcelona Open the following week. The Spaniard will be eyeing a return to the court ahead of the second Grand Slam of the year, which begins in Paris on May 22nd. Nadal is a 13-time French Open champion. He will be bidding to win back the title from defending champion Novak Djokovic. Thousands of people gathered along Washington's Tidal Basin to take in the sights of the city's famed cherry blossom trees in peak bloom. The pale pink and white blossoms frame the pathways surrounding the city's monuments. Around 70% of the blossoms there are now open. The beloved trees were given as a friendship gift from Japan in 1912, and now the annual Cherry Blossom Festival commemorates the enduring gift of those 3,000 trees. It also celebrates the relationship between the two countries. If someone is going to sneak into your bridal photo, this might be the guy you want. Actor Tom Hanks gave a Pennsylvania bride the ultimate surprise. Wedding photographer Rachel Rowland says the bride was about to hop into a limo when nice guy Tom Hanks walked up and asked to take a photo with her. He posed for a few shots and congratulated everyone, and then, just like Forrest Gump, he ran out of there. Hanks is in Pittsburgh shooting a movie called A Man Called Otto. He plays a retiree who becomes friends with his neighbors. Get ready for your daily dose of cute. This one comes to you courtesy of the Denver Zoo, which has welcomed a rare and adorable addition to its herd, a baby bongo. The calf, named Winston, was born to parents Fern and Howard on March 5th. The zoo gave animal lovers the first look at their Winston last week in a video on Twitter. Bongos are a rare species of antelope found in rainforests, from Senegal to Kenya. The Denver Zoo has four adult eastern bongos, which are even more rare than western bongos. There are fewer than 200 left in the wild, and they are considered critically endangered. Winston is small right now, but he will likely grow up to 4.5 feet tall at the shoulder.
and he could weigh up to 900 pounds. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.